Hi, this is Dave, and I just finished uh, an amazing episode of the IC Disc Show. I had the privilege of doing uh, uh, several firsts all in that episode. One is I had the first time that I had a repeat guest. Uh, Neil Block of Baker and McKenzie uh, was a repeat guest. The second unique thing is that uh, this podcast will air on the date of Neil's last day before he retires after 50 years with Baker and McKenzie. So that's also interesting. And then the third uh, interesting part about this podcast is that uh, Neil's, one of Neil's successors, uh, Dave Barrick at Baker and McKenzie was also on there. So we actually had two guests at the same time and that, that made it uh, a lot of fun. Uh, we really delved into a lot of different ways to structure a disc that just leaves me wanting to, uh, to really call up all of our clients and, uh, and say, Hey, you need, uh, you need to think about some of these, uh, these other structures for secondary and, and third discs. And so they really get into some just great detail and it's really appropriate for advisors to family run businesses who are trying to, uh, transfer wealth as tax efficiently as possible. And it's also a great podcast for those who are CFOs or owners of closely held family businesses who are trying to, uh, you know, transfer energet generational wealth as tax efficiently as possible. So I hope you enjoyed this, uh, this interview as much as I did. And thanks again for listening to the IC Disc Show. So this is a very uh, special episode for several reasons. One, it's uh, the first time we've had a guest on the show a second time, and that would be Neil Block of Baker and McKenzie. This is his uh, second time to be on the IC Disc Show. Additionally, this is also the first time we've had two guests at the same time, and uh so Neil will be joined today by uh, his colleague, uh, Dave Barrick. And uh, are you there, Dave? I am. Hello. Awesome. And then the third thing that's unique about this, it's with mixed feelings that I'm announcing that uh, my one of my all-time favorite IC disc experts is retiring at the end of this month. Uh, you want to just talk a bit more about that, Neil? Sure. Well, uh, I'd say 50 years at the uh, same firm is probably about enough time to uh, uh, say that I've had a full legal career, and uh, so I'm going to be retiring. Uh, it's been the only law firm I've worked for since I uh, got out of law school. I spent two and a half years in the tax court before that, but uh, once I joined Baker McKenzie in 1969, I've been there ever since. So it's all good things come to an end. It's about time that we do so now. Okay. Well, thank you again for your uh, your dedication to uh, to the profession these last 50 years. So, um uh so Neil was on episode 4 of the IC Disc show. So anybody that wants to reference that and kind of go back to some of the background of the IC Disc, they can do so. So since we've already covered on that episode, uh we will uh, skip that for this time. What I wanted to talk about uh, were really several things. I wanted to talk about uh, with Neil a bit of uh, of different IC disk structure types, and then I want to uh, hear more about Dave's uh, practice and kind of some of the ways that dovetails with the IC disk. Now, Neil, my understanding is that uh, Dave is effect is uh, effectively uh, your successor to the IC disk practice. Is that accurate? That's correct. He'll be the contact for uh, Baker McKenzie on um, IC disk uh, questions in a general nature. We have uh, two other people that will be involved. One is Maura Ann McBreen, who's our uh, ERISA expert, and she's, she specializes in the Roth IRA structure, or at least knows everything about ERISA regarding Roth IRAs. Okay. And then, uh, and then David would be the, uh, the contact for the uh, um, the uh, uh, the uh, wealth aspect, the wealth building aspect of the uh, IC disk structures. Okay. 
So that sounds good. And in fact, um, uh, uh, pardon the fact I seem to be kind of bouncing around. Like I said, this is the first time we've had two guests on the show. Uh, why don't we switch gears to Dave? And uh, Dave, why don't you just uh, share uh, a bit of your background, uh, where you went undergrad, law school, how long you've been at Baker McKinsey, and just talk a bit about your practice, because I know it encompasses more than IC disk. Sure. So I, I uh, started off as an accountant. I went to DePaul University here in Chicago, and I'm an accounting major. I'm a CPA, worked in public accounting for about 10 years, specializing in tax. And then I went to law school at night at John Marshall Law School. Um, I've got an uh, LLM in employee benefits. And I focus my tax practice in uh, wealth management, which at Baker McKenzie means really like trusted estates. So I deal a lot okay. with wealthy multi-generational family groups, and I'll do the planning from a wealth transfer perspective. And that's one of the ways that Neil and I started working together more and more because many of his and many of his clients that put in place a disc happen to be family businesses and they tended to be multi-generational. So this was just one aspect of their overall planning. Um, so the, the disc kind of fit nicely into the my perspective, the general wealth planning for a family family owned business group. Okay. Well that sounds that sounds great. Um let me just interject. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, on that, because uh, basically, Morian, of course, knows everything about ERISA, and David would know structuring and how to maximize the use of the Roth IRA, for example, in um, getting ownership just outside of any strict um, Roth IRA structure somebody might have, but expanding it to uh, uh, using other members of the family to own the Roth IRA, other other companies that would be involved. And so it's a it's sort of a building block on uh, on a structure that's uh, that's become successful up to now in its own right. Okay. Another way to put that, another way to put that is, as Neil retires, we basically have a whole team coming in to back support what his practice has been for the past fifty years, because he's really incorporated a number of different practices. Or, or said another way, uh, perhaps, is that uh, what Neil was able to do by himself, it's going to take a whole team of people to replace him. Is that exactly. one way to look exactly at it? Right. Okay. Yeah. So um, with that, why don't we just dive into the Roth IRA? We spoke um, uh, some on the episode four, uh, uh, Neil did, as far as kind of the history of the uh, the, the Roth and kind of it's winding its way through the, the courts. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, is that it's a structure that is withstood IRS challenge, and the comfort level with using this structure seems to be higher than it was several years ago. Is that a fair characterization, or how would you would either of you characterize the Roth IRA structure? I I would say that that's a fair fair characterization. Uh, there's still one case involving a fisc, which could have an impact on the um, on the uh, legal aspects of, of the Roth IRA. But uh, at this point, we have now had the Roth IRA structure, which which is the um, uh, basically it's, it's a um, it's a disproportionate ownership structure, whereby the Roth IRA ownership. Is disproportionate to the uh, ownership of the related supplier, uh, which is a normal case, whereas the disc is owned by the same person or persons that own the related supplier. So, in and of itself, the structure itself is an estate planning vehicle in that it's a, it's a shifting process of shifting wealth from the uh, owner of a corporation to their sons, daughters, etc. Uh, with no gift tax or estate tax consequences, so it's it's become a, a fairly good uh, state planning vehicle. The reason it's stronger now than it was before is because we've now survived quite a few court cases. The most recent one is was Summa Holdings, where the actually the tax court stepped in and tried to put a stop to the structure, but then we appealed the case to three separate circuits because of the residency of the taxpayers. And as a result, we've gotten uh, opinions from the first, second, and sixth circuit upholding the Roth IRA structure, and we got eight out of nine possible votes uh, in the Court of Appeals. So having 
the only outstanding uh, authority being the U.S. Court of Appeals case, we feel fairly comfortable that um, without any congressional action, this is a good structure. Okay. And then, uh, Dave, do you want to uh, just maybe add to, from your perspective on this structure, on you know some of what makes it appealing to your clients? Sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, as a general premise, wealthy clients don't typically have a large holdings in IRAs or, or therefore Roth IRAs, just because they, a lot of it is inherited wealth. Um, but the benefit of a Roth IRA is that you can pay the tax to, to get the Roth funded. And then as the earnings accrue on the underlying assets in that Roth, they're not subject to tax. And when they come out, they're not subject to income tax. And they're just distributed to the beneficiary. So from from my perspective, although Roth IRs, I think, were targeted at the rank and file, they really probably were used more so by the wealthier employees because they were the ones that could afford to pay the tax up front to convert to a Roth IRA. So if you mm-hmm. take that concept that you've got kind of you've got a um, tax a, a no tax wrapper for a period of time. And if I can fund, if I can have one of the investments as a disc, uh, that's, that's potentially highly successful. It's a, it's a nice match of two techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's why I think that it was a unique utilization of the two, the, the two at the time when, when Neil came up with the idea. Okay. Well, that's uh yeah, that's that's great. And why don't we just kind of walk through the the mechanics? Because this is a, qu- a question I get a lot when I've brought this idea up with our clients, and their first uh, you know comment is, "Well, you know, none of my children have any IRAs," and 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 they sort of feel like they're stuck there. So, could one of you kind of you know sort of go through the mechanics, kind of starting at the beginning? Like in theory, if somebody does not currently have an IRA. Uh, how might they go about uh, getting the ball rolling to make this structure work? Let me start off and have Neil kind of fill in because what you, what you just said, David, is, is re- really what I just said a moment, a moment ago is that a lot of clients don't, wealthy clients don't have IRAs necessarily. And so it's important to recognize that the, the, the disc Roth IRA is not, it's not a precursor that you have to have an IRA. Um, so Neil, why don't you take it, why don't you take it from there? Okay. What I was going to say is, um, during my lectures, I commonly point out that the Roth IRA is a good estate planning vehicle for children, grandchildren, and sometimes even the unborn. And people say, well, how is a, uh, three month old infant going to get an IRA when they have to earn earned income? And the answer is, um, in many cases, you just take a picture of the child and you pay them a modeling fee, and that starts you off with a uh, enough money to fund an IRA and then convert that IRA into a Roth IRA. So uh, basically, even though you might not have the income to qualify for Roth IRA initially, you may have enough enough earned income to get an IRA and then convert it into a Roth IRA, which can be done almost immediately. It's, uh, it's it's called a backdoor IRA, a Roth backdoor Roth IRA, but then that's that's how you get the thing in place. Basically, you have to have a custodian that will uh, be the custodian for a Roth IRA, and um, most brokerage houses qualify uh, getting some to be the custodian for for a Roth IRA which owns a disc uh, has been a challenge because they don't understand disc and they don't understand that they would have to form the disc themselves in order to uh, get the thing, the ball rolling. So you have to choose, and we've got some custodians that will do the job with a Roth IRA owning a disc. And we okay. sort of recommend that. We sort of recommend that because uh, the ones that we use don't charge a lot of time for their own education and trying to figure out what's going on. But I once see. they get the Roth IRA, uh, the Roth IRA will form a disc, and that basically is, is the way the business starts. The disc can, uh, the reason this has been successful is there's, it's avoided prohibited transactions in that the, the Roth IRA does not uh, use any of its assets in order to earn income uh, from the disc. The disc is basically a device, as you've already pointed out in numerous broadcasts, 
just does not have to do anything. It's a paper corporation, and it only has to exist to receive uh, commission income and then distribute that income out. So basically, the function is the uh, uh, that by having the disk and having uh, qualified exports, the profit on those exports in part is paid into the disk. The disk pays a commission, a, a dividend to the Roth IRA or to a holding company, which pays a dividend to the Roth IRA. And that now you're in business on accumulating wealth. There is a tax, an upfront tax on the distribution of the disk dividends to an IRA or to a holding company. So that tax has to be paid at normal corporate rates. But once that tax is paid, and the funds are in the Roth IRA, they become reinvested tax-free until withdrawal. Yeah, and that corporate tax rate being the 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 twenty-one percent current corporate tax yeah. rate, correct? Yeah. Incidentally, that's something that the that the instructions for the Form nine ninety T for the the uh, UBIT tax says to use the trust rate, but we've got the service convinced that it's the corporate rate that's used, and they were supposed to change the instructions, but they have changed their computer programs. So that when you pay the, at the corporate rate, you're you're not in, you're not questioned anymore. Okay, and so uh, and then once that the dividends are are paid to the Roth and the Roth pays the tax, uh, then that money can be invested in any uh, vehicle that the custodian is uh, comfortable with. Correct, like uh, mutual funds or such. Correct. Well, the way we've set it up is in many cases the clients aren't interested in using the uh, custodian. So then what we, have the custo the, what we do is have the Roth IRAs establish an account with a brokerage firm of the client's choice so that the funds will then, after they're paid out as a dividend into the Roth IRA, the Roth IRA will then invest as directed by the uh, beneficiaries into a into a into an account, which is it could be any account. It could be um, Merrill Lynch. It could be um, Morgan Stanley. It could be you know, any one of those companies, uh, Schwab, for example. And as long as they accept the Roth IRA account, uh, they can now invest uh, as they wish with the advice and uh, uh, experience of the, of the brokerage house if they want. Okay. And so, like for just to show the magnitude of, of this, Let's just assume you had a uh, a company that had a disc that was producing a million dollars a year of IC disc commissions, and they uh, there were two children that the uh, uh, whose Roth they wanted to own it. So uh, you, you get the IRAs established, convert them to the Roths, and then those uh, those Roths would actually purchase the initial stock to capitalize the disc. Correct. Yes, although if you want to follow the the cases that we tried, the SUMA cases, uh, what happened there was that the um, uh, Roth IRAs uh, uh, formed the disc, and then they formed a holding company, a C-corporation holding company, and then dropped the disc into the holding company. So that at, as the disc commissions were earned, the disc paid a dividend to a holding company, and that way the Roth IRA did not have to pay any tax on the uh, disk distribution, the corporation did, and that was all under the control of the uh, of the client and its uh, accountants. Then, I when see. the then then when the tax was paid at the corporate level, they were the, the balance was paid out as a dividend to the Roth IRA. And since uh, dividend income normally is tax free to a Roth IRA, uh, these dividends from the C corporation were tax free because of the uh, tax already having been paid up front at the corporate level. And this is all pointed out in the uh, court opinions and blessed by them, so that that structure uh, works quite well. You don't have to have the holding company. You can have the dividends paid into the Roth IRA, but then the Roth IRA pays the tax on the dividends at the, at the corporate rate. And uh, some taxpayers find it a little messy to have to rely on the, on the Roth IRA to pay the tax, and so that's where they, they sure. use the holding company. Well, that, that makes sense. And then when you just look at the magnitude of this, so in this example, uh, there's a million dollars being paid to the holding company uh, or holding companies. Let's assume that there was just a single Roth for this point. And so they're paying 210000 uh for the UBIT tax. And then that remaining 790000 is being distributed to the disc. And then, again, that money grows tax-free. 
So if you would imagine, like if somebody had just a, a five-year-old child, let's say, and they, they did this for 10 years, uh, you're talking about $7.9 million going in to the Roth. And then because of the time value of money and compounding, you know, that number over 30, 40, 50 years, right, could grow to tens and even, you know, $100 million, right? In the cases that we tried, I believe, I can't remember how many years were involved, but it got a lot of play because they, they say a $2,500 investment uh, got converted into $3 million a year for each of the two uh, children of the owner of the company. So uh, it can grow quite rapidly. But remember, uh, you're not saving, uh, you're making saving some tax because the corporate rate's a bit lower than the uh, individual rate. But the savings is not from the payment of the disk commission and then the commission dividend into the Roth IRA. The savings is the tax-free growth in the Roth IRA. Right. Right. And, and so then in, the other... In, in the ahead. case we had, just as in the case we had, even though there were $6 million, I believe, in the two Roth IRAs, uh, that all came from the disk commission. There was no really income that was earned by the uh, Roth IRA or any basic tax savings because tax was paid up front in, those, in that case. Right. Right. That makes sense. And then you know, another benefit that I, I that we didn't mention, I know that in, is my understanding correct that in some states, uh, qualified retirement assets are effectively creditor proof? And would the Roth fall under that umbrella? Yes, oh, that's correct. Actually. Yeah, that's that's correct. So, uh, so that's another, you know, kind of uh, a perk to it. Um, okay, well, that is, that is, uh, that is very helpful. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit and, and go to Dave. So Dave, maybe give kind of a typical example uh, of how you're seeing the Roth used as part like of an overall uh, uh, wealth uh, transfer strategy and, and just you know, kind of speaking generically. Uh, could you maybe give an example of, of, of how this might be one of several elements? That you sure. might help a client with. I'll give you a kind of a typically a typical profile of a client that we work with, um, and and I found this when working with Neil as I met the clients when they started asking me other questions outside of the disc area. Um, their profile looked very much like my typical my typical client profile. It's just that not all my clients have discs, for example. Um, so the 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 concept is this if you if you build a family business you start uh, accumulating wealth in the business and now you're looking for ways to minimize income taxes and potentially pull money out of the company and get it to the right individuals within the family and so a disc can be one of those techniques you can bifurcate where the wealth is generated if you generate it solely in the business then that owner upon death is going to transfer it to whoever the, the descendants and pay an estate tax. If mm -hmm. you can bifurcate some of it to a ownership in a, in a disc, gather some wealth, pull some money out of the company through a disc strategy. Now you can have different owners of that disc and you can transfer some wealth that way. If you, take your ownership of the business and you transfer it to your your children, that's another way to transfer some of the wealth. But we're limited, uh, each taxpayer, as to how much they can actually give for free. And so this year, it's roughly $11.6 million. It's indexed for inflation. It was doubled under the 2017 Tax Act. And potentially, that goes back down to roughly $7 million in 2026 if Congress doesn't extend the law. So families that have businesses are kind of struggling with, I spend my whole life building up the wealth in this business, and then upon my death, the government's gonna get 40% of it, and my, my family only mm -hmm. gets 60%. Even though I've been paying income tax all the way along to, to build the new plant expansion and so on and so on. And so we look at different strategies that we can utilize to minimize the transfer tax to families to get the wealth spread out amongst the right buckets, so to speak, or, or generations or descendants. And of those different techniques, the disc is just one of our tools. It's, it's one that we can add okay. to a family that's got exports. So. Okay. Well, and the point, the point with the disc, of course, in the, in the SUMA cases, 
remember we had the father and the two children. Uh, basically, all of the income in the Roth IRAs represented a transfer of wealth from the father's ownership uh, to the children without any gift tax. And right. also, when he dies, it'll be without any estate tax. So that's that's the the for the wealthy, so to speak. That's that's the advantage. Um, can we just switch now to a couple of other planning techniques that you can sure. still use with the disc? Sure. Um, one is, in addition to using it to uh, create wealth for the uh, children and the grandchildren, what have you, the disc can be used to transfer wealth to key employees. And uh, what we've, we've found is in lieu of a bonus, uh, we have key employees own stock of a disc. And as a result, the, the income from the the disc becomes capital gains income, or the employees can put, um, establish their own Roth IRAs and um, have the, the disc earn income uh, and, and then pay as a dividend to the Roth IRAs. And uh, that, again, will avoid um, uh, any, actually avoid any tax to the employees. So uh, that's that's another way of uh, shifting wealth. and. Um, it was the topic of the of conversation with the uh, Sixth Circuit, which when when he was trying to point out that uh, it wasn't only the very wealthy that could be advantaged uh, by the structure, but the less wealthy, uh, the employees, for example. And uh, yeah, and as I and as I understand it, one of the there's several benefits through effectively paying the bonuses uh, or having disc commission income in lieu of bonuses. And that is that the uh, the payroll taxes would be less by the employer, uh, less by the employee share, and then you have the lower tax rate uh, on the dividend income versus if it came out as ordinary income. Is that, right. There's no no employment. Yes, no employment taxes and uh, capital gains tax on the disc dividends, whether in whether to the Roth IRA or to the uh, to the shareholder himself. The structure is, is used not only for Roth IRAs, for example, it's just, it just uses additional compensation to the key employees. And now, we, we actually, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Neil. We, we actually have structured it so that the owner of the company can almost determine how much of the disk income goes to the specific employees or to himself, because in many cases, he's one of the owners of the disk. So uh, there, there's a fair amount of flexibility in the structure. Yeah, and so with that, we've seen this scenario, and one of them is to have two discs, like one owned by the related supplier, and then one owned by like the key employees, uh, and then to to you know first pay out the kind of bonus portion, and then the remainder to be paid to the disc owned by the related supplier. Is is that similar to some of the structures you've seen? Uh, yes, and um, there is a possibility of having the, just the employees own the disc and then have the, uh, the basically have their commission not be part of the say, the uh, uh, portion that's uh, allowable under the under the code because it's based, there's a ruling that says that might be an arm's length commission, not a safe harbor commission. So there, we don't recommend it because it looks a little bit too greedy. But basically, uh, what we do is we take the normal. Uh, disc commission that's allowable if the owner of the company received it, and then use that same amount to be in part the bonus for the employees. Uh, okay. But, and do you normally do you like what do you do if there's like say uh, you know five or six people on that 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 management team that's receiving the bonuses? Do you end up with like separate discs for each, or how do you handle like the like if an employee leaves? or is fired, um, how do you handle that sort of turnover at the executive ranks? That's a good question. And what we usually do is we don't have the disc owned by the employees. We usually have a uh, limited liability company own the disc and then have the employees be members of the limited liability company. And then we would have the owner of the related supplier uh, be the manager of the LLC, and he would determine what the disc benefits were to the individual uh, right. employees. And I've seen so, that language that you give that manager. I think the term is broad discretion on how the funds are distributed uh, from the LLC to the uh, 
uh, to the recipients. That's yeah, in words, we, and we 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 have been involved. One of the things we do is we we can do the um, the uh, management agreement for the LLCs to accommodate how it's going to be uh, distributed out. And that's Bob Wilson is the uh, person that uh, generally will draft those documents. So uh, as I was saying before, we we have a team that uh, can handle all the aspects of the thing. So um, from planning to implementation. Okay, so that's on the uh, the employee ownership of the disk. Um, but I I sense that there were some other uh, structures you had in mind. Well, what else? Yeah, are you one of, okay, one of the um, uh, important uses of the disk, and that, this is one that uh, has not been challenged in court, uh, or there's no court decisions. But uh, to the extent that we have a U.S. company that does exporting, uh, and that U.S. company is owned. Uh, in part or solely by a foreign corporation, if that foreign corporation is in a country that has a treaty with the United States, then the, if the treaty is later in time through the disc provisions, which these days almost all of them are because the last disc provision was in about 1989 or something, or 90, uh, in that case, the treaty provisions will prevail over the disc provisions. So under the code, Disc dividends to a foreign shareholder are taxed as unrelated business taxable income, uh, or I'm sorry, effectively connected. It's income effectively connected with the U.S. trade or business, subject to tax at ordinary rates. But under the treaty, you cannot do that unless you have a permanent establishment in the United States. And ownership of a U.S. subsidiary is not does not create a permanent establishment. So, uh, because of the treaty provisions, and you have to read each treaty very carefully, but because of the treaty provisions, the disc dividends do not get taxed at uh, ordinary income rates, but at the withholding tax rates on the treaties. So that's another structure that's that's been in place and uh, uh, benefits foreign shareholders, and they could be large or small. So just to, to have a, an illustration of that, let's just say a, a foreign company um, you know, has a, a wholly owned U.S. subsidiary, and the disc is established, would the shareholder of the disc be the foreign corporation? It would be the foreign corporation or a subsidiary of it um, in the same country. Okay. And then, so let's just say that there was a million dollars of commission paid in a year. Uh, Can you walk me through kind of the mechanics? Let's say it was uh, uh, England, let's say, is where the company was based. Uh, or just a country that you're, you're kind of familiar with the treaty, uh, you know, specific rates uh, to just see how that million dollars ends up getting flowing through to the ultimate uh, foreign corporation. Sure. The um, let's just say we had a million dollars of this commission. There's some confusion sometimes as to what the disc, the disc isn't allowed to earn the entire commission, just the portion of it, depending on the safe harbor rules. But let's assume there's a $2 million profit and a million dollars goes into the disc. And the disc now is owned by a UK corporation. And the the treaty now applies. And so we take the position that the disc dividends to the UK corporation, uh, well, let's put this way, the, the million dollars of commission to the disc is deductible by the US company. The million dollars of income to the disc is tax-free to the disc because the disc is a tax-exempt entity. The disc dividends then become would normally be taxed as effectively connected income, but under the treaty, it said we would apply the treaty withholding rate. And for treaties for dividends out of the U.S. to the U.K., the rate is either uh, I think generally five percent or zero, and uh, depending on the holding of the company and how long it's been held and uh, other factors. But in any event, we've now got a deduction at. Uh, Say twenty one percent or even higher if the, if the the company is not paying at the corporate rates, and the income going into the uh, UK company is taxed at five percent or zero, and under the UK provisions, there's no tax in the UK. Wow, that's really uh, that's really uh, you know can be really powerful. I've also seen where the, under that same structure they'll do kind of a, a blending, like we talked about earlier, with the employee-owned disc, where they might structure that where 
they'll have some of the employees in the U.S. Um, you know, be a, a either a part owner in the disc or the owner of the second disc, and so you're kind of combining the the two strategies there. Well, I think the the point that that you're raising is that there's no limit to the number of discs that can be created in a what they call a controlled group. Mm -hmm. So if you want to use a disc for one purpose and another disc for a different purpose and a third disc for even a different purpose, uh, there's no prohibition. Okay. So, um, so Dave, I uh, I I know you're listening quietly. Uh, what? Uh, what thoughts has that prompted in your mind based on some of these conversations that you'd like to add some commentary to? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first the first thought is that the disc um, has survived uh, a number of years and is, is kind of still thriving. And I think Neil can probably add a little history to that, but that's that's something that we're, we constantly have been looking at to see if, well, is there going to be a change in the law that eliminates the ability to, to do a disc? And I think our opinion is not that we know of, uh, although you never know. Um, and the second point is that it's many times it's highly treaty sensitive. And so I think maybe we've been fortunate to have a kind of a hold on new treaties recently. Um, but that's always something that impacts the analysis. And I think that's something that, you know, Neil brings kind of a, a deep history of how this has all worked out over the years. You know, do you want to mm -hmm. comment on that? Uh, yeah, I think one of the caveats, if I'm to use a legal word, in, in the use of the treaty is you have to look to see what the country that you're dealing with is going to do with the disc commissions. And in some countries, uh, such as Japan or uh, France, you might have difficulty under local taxing provisions because they'll treat the disc dividends or the disc income the same as subpart F income with, for U.S. purposes. In other words, they won't get the benefits that the um, normal corporation might get in the treaty country because of the fact that the disc is tax exempt. Yeah, I, I can see why that is so country uh, specific. So it's important on the structuring on the front end um, to determine, you know, where the right setup is. And then, you know, you want to just talk about the, your experience over the past uh, 50 years with uh, legislation? Yes. Well, um, over the past 50 years, the disc has always been on the way out. <laughs> it was, I think the disc came in in the 70s under the Gerald Ford administration as a Republican measure to encourage exports and give exporters a tax benefit. Um, a few years later, the Republicans decided they didn't want the disc anymore for whatever reason. And the Democrats said, no, keep it, because uh, the disc was being used by small exporters uh, to their advantage. And they didn't want the small exporters to be uh, uh, disadvantaged. Uh, Subsequently, uh, the disc was, quote, re was found to be in violation of the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade, and the Foreign Sales Corporation was organized to replace the disc. The Foreign Sales Corporation was a, um, a foreign corporation in a selected qualifying jurisdictions that had the same benefits as the, uh, as the disc had. Uh, and was being used by the larger corporations to reduce their tax rate by about 15%. But rather than getting rid of DISC, they kept the DISC as a, quote, interest charge DISC and basically made the DISC uh, more attractive to small ex exporters because there's a $10 million deferral amount that they allowed, uh, and the, the FISC had unlimited amounts. So at the same time, the DISC, which was a deferral mechanism at the time, allowed all the disc income to be repatriated tax-free. So that was an encouragement to, for the larger corporations to go into the FISC. But the disc survived. And then when the capital gains rates came in, there became an arbitrage advantage to having the disc pay dividends to shareholders so that the dividends got taxed at capital gains rates while the related supplier got taxed, got ordinary income deductions. So that, that moved along. And then... Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but then there was a proposal to uh, eliminate DISC altogether. And because there was such a hue and cry from small exporters, that failed. And then I think most there's been a number of attempts to limit DISC, but the most recent one was 
I think the 19, the Tax Reform Act of 1917, whatever they call it, or 2019, I'm sorry, 2017, in which uh, under the Senate bill this was to be eliminated. But once again, the um, uh, the lobbying groups for the small exporters uh, convinced the one Republican whose vote was needed to pass the bill to oppose any change in the disc provisions. And as a result, the disc provisions remain intact. So it's always had uh, people trying to get rid of it, and the IRS doesn't like it because it's an entity that doesn't do anything but saves taxes. Sure. Uh, presently, presently, as David points out, uh, or Dave points out, the the um, Congress is so split that they can't agree on anything. So until that gets resolved, we don't see any change in disc. Mm-hmm. Hey, one quick question to go back on the on the Roth owned disc. Let's say you have somebody that owns a business they export, but let's just say they have no heirs. If that if that person was say like 25 years old and planned to you know work for decades, I'm guessing that that using the Roth structure would still make sense for them. But maybe if somebody was in their 60s, uh, it may not make so much sense, you know, if they're not using an, an error strategy, but just a tax saving strategy. Could one of you comment on if you've explored that issue and, and if there seems to be kind of a rule of thumb of kind of the age of the person where it starts to be more attractive or less attractive? I, I'll, I'll take a first crack. I mean, I think it's a combination of the dollar amount and the age so that if it's if it's a deferral mechanism, then it doesn't really matter how old you are. If you think that you're going to use the money in the future and, and you want to minimize the income tax in the short term, um, if it's a, um, a dollar amount like you've you've already maybe you have heirs, but you've already given them enough. And so you might just leave the Roth to charity, for example. And it's, a, you know, you can do that. Most people, the general premise, when we talk about Roth, we're saying, I'm going to pay tax on my IRA and then convert it to a Roth and have it grow tax-free. And so by definition, I'm going to leave it to somebody. You wouldn't pay tax up front and then leave the Roth to charity, for example. Right. But with the with a disc Roth scenario, you're not paying. I mean, you, you, you don't, I, we said this at the beginning, but I think it's really important to highlight. You don't need a big IRA to convert to a Roth. You can start up so long as you can start up an IRA. You can start up the Roth with, with nominal funding, and then it can be the beneficiary or the, the recipient of the distributions from the disc. So it's to me, it's a business planning tool. It's it's less of a obviously a retirement tool. Um, so your your example with a sixty year old that doesn't have descendants still may do it just to have like a little nest egg that they will they will take out after they sell their business or what have you. Okay. And I guess another use of it for somebody without the heirs is just the asset protection aspect. If they're in a state that recognizes that, mm-hmm. uh, right. Totally. Correct. Is, yeah. So I mean, yeah, let's totally. just say the person had a $20 million net worth, mostly in the business that's uh, exposed, but over the course of say five years, they're able to basically transition 5 million of that 20 million to their Roth own disc. Uh, you know, that may have its own, uh, appeal just from the asset protection. So, okay. Can I interject? Can I interject yeah. with one case that we have right now? And the, this is one where actually uh, there's a mother, and she's got I think three or four children, and basically she's been transferring the stock to them, and suddenly realized she wanted to spend some money, <laughs> so she had them establish a disc owned by her. So that she could get the money in her own hands, so she could spend it and take her own vacations and and pamper herself for the rest of her life. So that this was a reverse estate planning vehicle where she wanted the money back in her own hands. So that um, not every uh, person who is dealing with wealth necessarily um, um, wants to use it for leaving the money to their heirs, but spending it for themselves. Okay, that's uh, that that is interesting. Okay. Um, is there any other ownership structures that come to mind, uh, Neil, that we need to talk about? Well, yeah, there's a number of them. Uh, apart from the IRAs and the uh, treaty country ownership, uh, there's another thing, too, that um, uh, is overlooked sometimes, and that's a partnership. 
In many cases, there's a company that's closely held but has a partnership with a, let's say, a publicly held company or a joint venture. And if they form a partnership, the, the partnership income earned by the closely held company uh, will qualify for DISC benefits because if the partnership is exporting, each partner is deemed to be an exporter in his own right and therefore uh, can take advantage of the DISC provisions, even though the company that's doing the exporting is, is quite large and is mostly held by a, um, a C corporation, which has no use for the DISC. So that's that would be one um, hmm, okay. One, one advantage. Um, let me see what else we have here. We have the, um, as I said before, we use the, for state planning purposes, we don't need the IRAs. You can just have the, the disc owned by the, by the children or grandchildren of the, of the, of the owner. It's not necessary to use a Roth IRA or an IRA structure it's just simply another way of uh, shifting the wealth the same same as to the employees but in this case would be it would be children yeah uh, and that's a good point and i've seen i've seen is my understanding correct i've seen situations where folks have gotten in trouble with that because they'll take an existing disc and transfer some of the stock to the children and then perhaps creating a valuation issue so that the best practices would be to form a brand new disc is that that accurate? Well, actually, um, we have had some difficulty with the state planners when they when they see the value of the disc. And, you know, the disc is turning all this income. And it's one of the greatest investments that you can make. It's like to start putting a value in the disc at a very high level. But there is a revenue procedure, Rev Proc uh, eighty one fifty four, which is normally a bad ruling, but it does say that the fair market value of disc stock at any, any given time is book value. Oh, okay. So that reduces that risk of uh, evaluation issue upon transferring it. Right. Now, in, in many cases, we have a disc owned by a, uh, an S corporation, which is fine because the, uh, the S corporation income flows through to the, uh, uh, to the shareholders and they pay tax and capital gains rates. But the disadvantage is it takes away planning opportunities for the shareholders to use their own Roth IRA or do their own generation skipping. So in that, some cases, rather than using a disc owned by the S corporation, the shareholders of the S corporation may be better off owning the disc stock. Uh, another okay. situation, which generally of results when we have um, farming, farming companies, uh, Remember that the only benefits that the disc can take for the, in the normal course are, are income from exports. But in many cases, if you take a farm, for example, uh, the farm was originally uh, found by mom and dad, and they had uh, four or five kids. And then mom and dad got older, and they, uh, they wanted to keep the kids in the business. So each kid got a little bit of the business. One got the crops, one got the... Uh, the processing facilities, one got the machinery and equipment, uh, one took care of the marketing. And so as a result, there's you might have four or five different uh, companies or entities uh, earning income from the farming operation, but the, that results in a very small amount of income from the export activities. So one way we've gotten around that is to form a partnership of all of the family members so that the uh, members become each one of those little businesses now contributing to the partnership and the partnership export income is now the entire export profit that would have been the case if mom and dad had still owned the uh, the farm so oh i see okay so what we do is and basically our partnership people get involved in this transaction and for the most part they've been saying that you know really what they've had all along is a partnership anyhow they just haven't They've just divided it up, but in many cases, right. you find that these, these families sit down and decide how much each, each person is going to make anyway. So um, it's also possible for unrelated parties, but you have to watch it a little bit more closely so you, you make sure that the uh, partnership agreement provides for what the different partnerships want. When we use an LLC, for example, we use different classes of LLC interests in order to get the same, get the, get the party's desires the way they want them. And in some cases, it's used to give, you know, one party a greater percentage of the profit than the other one would have 
where you wouldn't get the evidence, just a straight disc ownership. And speaking and, of the farming, op- oh, go, go ahead, Neil. No, that's okay. Go ahead. So speaking of the farming operations, I had a question yesterday about a company that um, it's a farming company and their situation, though, they sell to a co-op and the co-op exports a portion of what they're selling them, which on the surface appears to be problematic to qualify for the disc because of the commingling of the, the grain. Um, is that something you've had any experience with co-ops and, and or there, is there a way to make that work from a structural perspective or uh, operational perspective that you've seen? Uh, the answer is yes. I've, I've been involved in the co-op situation. I've actually been involved with trying to get a ruling from the IRS on how the co-op would work. And it's not been very easy. <clears throat> I, the service is still refusing to give rulings as far as I know. Uh, one of the problems in the co-op is how you measure the, the disc profit because uh, what do you do with the expenses of the farmer? And uh, when you sell to the co-op, what is the co-op's basis and, and what's the farmer's uh, share of the co-op profits on how's that going to be taxed and is there going to be a uh, an offset uh, for his profits for disc purposes against his crop growing expenses? Uh, so there's there's a number of issues that have to be worked through in terms of the co-op, but basically the, the co-op structure does lend itself uh, to the disc benefits, but getting the rulings from the um, service that would bless the structure have been difficult. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, Dave, do you have anything to, to add? Since again, we've, we've kind of kept you out of the conversation for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> That's okay. I, I, I suppose I just would would note that the uh, the new Secure Act that it's effective January first changed the stretch out rules for IRAs, which would include Roth IRAs, meaning that you can't stretch it out over the life the life expectancy of the beneficiary. It's got to be paid out ten years after the death of the participant, essentially. And so, not not great, but I don't think it has much of an impact. It just means that. The, the, if you if you do a, a, a disc Roth uh, technique, then once the uh, once the owner passes away, it's going to be distributed out of that Roth IRA within ten years. Still not something to tax, but something. To okay. Know. Okay. Well, thank you for that for that clarification. I, I might add one thing. It's, it's, it becomes sort of um, the holy grail of of disc, but somebody's new to disc is that you want to have the disc owned by a shareholder who's going to at least get the capital gains rate on disc dividends. And okay. the capital gains rate, I'm talking about the uh, uh, the 23.8% rate, not not the um, the normal, uh, because disc dividends are taxed at uh, as di- ordinary income, but if you're an individual, you pay tax at the, at the capital gains rate. So this okay. sort of leaves this sort of leaves out uh, corporations owning disc stock because the corporations uh, will pay tax on disc dividends at regular corporate rates, and then the dividends from the corporation to its shareholders will be taxed again. So you'll have double taxation. So right. The, the theory is that the disc stock is to be owned by a pass-through entity or a low-tax entity. Gotcha. And yep. that's why in the, the foreign shareholder situations, because we get the treaty benefit, we can have a corporation on this stock without suffering the detriment. Okay. Wow. Well, we have really covered a lot, and the time has um, has flown by. Um, normally, this is where I would ask for your contact information, Neil, but uh, given your retirement, perhaps we should get Dave's contact information. Uh uh, Dave, could you share your contact information? Sure. I can I can be contacted at Baker McKinsey at, at my email, which is my name, David dot Barrick, that's B as in boy, E-R-E-K, at BakerMcKenzie.com. And my telephone number is 312-861-8184. Okay. And then uh, the, the person that, the other uh, attorney, Neil, mentioned the, the female ERISA 
expert, you would be able to uh, forward the appropriate questions to her, correct? Right, right. In, in, in Neil's absence, we're putting together a team, and that would be Maura McBreen of our benefits, comp and benefits uh, group. Um, Bob Wilson puts together a lot of the structures as a paralegal in our corporate practice. And then we bring in other other uh, collaborative attorneys as, as needed. So we, we recognize that we have some very big shoes to fill with Neil uh, retiring. And uh, we're, we're, we're encouraged by the challenge. So we're looking forward awesome. to I, I might mention that Maura McBreen, Marianne McBreen, uh, is the co-attorney co with me, um, co-counsel in a case called Swanson Tool, which is a IRA disc case. And so she was actually on the brief and wrote both the ERISA portion, which frankly won the case. So she's very, oh, wow. very good okay. in theory. And um, uh, the only other thing is I did publish a BNA portfolio uh, this last year on DISC. Okay. So um, even though I'm not going to be in the office, if anybody wants my learned opinion on the DISC stuff, they can look at the portfolio. Okay. That sounds good. And uh, with just a couple of minutes left, Neil, do you mind retelling um, uh, one of my favorite stories you tell about the benefits of specialization? When you were in law school and the, the professor uh, talked about uh, the more narrow your focus, the less uh, uh, bright you have to be. Do you mind uh, just kind of re retelling that? Sure. I, uh, yeah. one, one of the gems I kept from law school was in my corporations class. Uh, the instructor was in private practice, and he said, just a word of advice, he says, you might, don't have to be the t sharpest tack in the shed, but if you know more about sub a subject than anybody else, the world will be the path to your doorstep. And I took that to heart. So when I came off the tax court and became an attorney with Baker McKenzie, the disc stuff was just being introduced. And I said, what better way to become a specialist than to get in on the ground floor? I didn't realize there was something called the Foreign Western Hemisphere Trade Corporation before that, but that's what I did. So that that became my guiding light. And so about 20 years into my practice, I was in the elevator in the Prudential Building where our offices were, and somebody said, Neil, do you um, I remember this professor from law school? And I said, well, of course. And, uh, it was Mr. Kaplan. I said, uh, uh, he said, well, here he is, and there, there he was. And so I said, you know, you said something to me that was my guiding light. He said, what I say? And I told him about the sharpest tack in the shed business. And you know what he said? He said Why? Did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> that? That is great. And then uh, lastly, I would like to share my other uh, – so that story had a huge – or that uh, uh, comment by your professor had a huge impact on your career. And although he did not make that um, – comment to me directly, I still picked that up somewhere. And that's why our business is solely focused on the IC disc. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, we're the only firm like ours that's focused purely on uh, the IC disc. Uh, but the other big lesson I learned from you, do you remember about eight years ago, I called you about a question and you answered the question in like three minutes. And then, uh, you know, you started inquiring about, you know, my, my family and the weather and such. And, uh, and so I quickly interrupted you because I said, Hey, Neil, you know, your billing rates, you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, $20 a, a minute, uh, for talking to you. So, uh, uh, you know, we might need to cut this call short. And I don't know if you remember this call, but you said, well, well hold on, Dave. I mean, you are correct. You're going to get a bill for, for our time today. And, and don't worry, I won't charge you for anything, you know, past that point. But he said, I'm the cheapest attorney you'll ever have. And I said, why? I, I mean, your billing rates are, you know, on an hourly basis or some of the highest of any attorneys we work with. And you said, yeah, you're going to get a bill for this conversation and it's going to be a few hundred dollars. But somebody else paid me $10,000 to research this matter before. And thus, I had the answer off the top of my head. And that's why, Dave, that the more expert somebody is, the more specialized they are, the higher, the higher their hourly rate must be, because otherwise they cannot capture the full value they're delivering because somebody else has already you know, paid for them to get the, uh, the, the research. And I've never forgotten that. And I keep that in mind as I hire experts and professionals in the future. And I've seen firsthand when you have a generalist and you ask them a question, their first response is, well, let me let me start the research on that because uh, I don't know that answer off the top of my head. So anyway, do you remember that story or that conversation? 
I remember you relaying it to me, so I think it must be okay. <laughs> okay. So, and I, and is there anything? Uh, and, and Dave, would you agree with Neil's uh, uh, point that, uh, that 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 that's uh, that it's not a bad strategy to use uh, experts? I I agree. One of the comments that I make to my clients is the more you talk to me, the more money you're going to save. So the more you can spend on, the more that you can invest into specialists or experts, the more profitable you're going to be. The question for the client is, when do I need an expert? Um, Right. When we get to these, when we get to our, our practice areas, it's pretty, it's pretty apparent. Well, awesome. Well, gentlemen, again, I can't believe the the time has flown so quickly. I could listen to to Neil Block stories for for hours upon end, but uh, but all things must come to an end. Neil, thank you again for just being a, such a great resource for my firm and uh, our clients for the the last decade or two. And uh, I just wish you the best of luck in your uh, your retirement. Well, David, thank thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate being able to close off my career by being on your podcast. Yeah. All right. If I was smart, I would make this my last podcast and just end on a high <laughs> note and just retire the podcast. <laughs> but uh, we'll have to think about that. Well, thanks a lot, guys. You both have a have a great day. Okay. You okay. bet. Take care. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-d-i-s-c-s-h-o-w.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.